Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks. Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick. Wow, hard to believe it's October already. Hard to believe this is episode nine of this podcast already. We're almost in double digits. This has been a blast. I'm learning a ton of stuff about leadership and getting refreshed and reminded about some other things and just talking to some really incredible, unique people. Um, I'll tell you, I've not looked forward to any of these episodes any more than this one right here, though. Um, those of you that know me know how, how uh, valuable a friendship I have with our next guest, who is Tim Urbelina. Tim and I go way back. I don't even remember the year. I think maybe it was uh, 2002 now that I think about it because we were becoming uh, United Way CEOs around the same time and met at what Tim affectionately calls baby CEO school uh, with United Way. And so that, that's our backgrounds. Uh, Tim, though, is a veteran service leader, servant leader. And I, I you know, we talk a lot about servant leaders. I don't know of anybody that exemplifies uh, what I believe a servant leader is any better than Tim. Um, he serves in ministry. He serves in business. Uh, he has served and and had a career in the social sector. He serves in his own neighborhood community, uh, which is in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, Tim is formerly the vice president and CFO of Herbalina Associates which is a Fort Lauderdale-based manufacturer's representative firm serving the Florida kitchen and bath trade. And uh, that's a, a when, it, it, as you're listening to my introduction, that sounds like an odd departure from everything I just described, but that's what he's doing now in the family business. And his career, though, included, as I mentioned, a 25-year career with the local and statewide United Ways around the country. In 2006, he became the president and CEO of the United Way Association of South Carolina, the training uh, public policy and technical assistance arm for the local United Ways in the state. And uh, he served in a number of statewide positions appointed by Governors Mark Sanford and Nikki Haley to improve the health, education, and financial stability of South Carolina's most vulnerable residents. Uh, in addition to that, he served in a number of national efforts, uh, focusing on asset-based community development, community stewardship, and volunteerism. And in 2016, he retired from all that, his service uh, with United Way, and now he and his wife, Kendra, make their home in Asheville, North Carolina. And more importantly than any of that stuff, Tim is my closest, best friend, brother from another mother, mentor, um, I still call him boss, and uh, he's also um, a, f a former member of the advisory board for the Jinx Perspective and now is really uh, starting to work his way in a little bit more to the work as a coaching associate with me, and I couldn't be more thrilled about it and excited about additional opportunities. Tim, I'm really excited about this episode, and um, I, I appreciate all that that I just said, but I also appreciate that we're finally doing this. 
Welcome. Oh, Patrick, me too. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to having this discussion for a long time. And it's a discussion you and I have kind of had, but we haven't had it formally like this. And I really like sometimes um, having a little structure around our discussions because <laughs> they tend to get me to bed earlier that way because otherwise we're up all night talking. And we're up all night at the fire pit. I, and yeah. That's right. And oftentimes our, Thanks our, for inviting me. well, I, it was, I mean, it's a no brainer and we would have done it sooner. Um, and I, I, you know, you and I talked about doing this in person as well. Uh, but you had to go and leave Columbia and go up to God's country in Asheville. And so now with, you know, this pandemic and stuff, we're having to do it, yeah. we're having to do it virtually, but I'm thankful that we have the tools to be able to do it. And, uh, I look forward to the time when we're connecting in person again soon. Um, Me too. Oftentimes when we've had this conversation, um, we've had it through a political lens and, mm -hmm. um, which I have greatly valued throughout my life and my, my friendship with you, because, uh, what's been interesting to me is, you know, you and I differ somewhat in political ideology, although you're so much more, um, you're so much more well-read than I am. Uh, but just, you know, our value, our backgrounds, our, our ideologies and things differ. And I think that through our conversations, which have always just been of tremendous respect, I think we found that we actually probably have more ideology in common than we, than we have different. Uh, it's funny how as, as much as the specific differences and ideas about things are, we also still sort of want the same thing and see a lot the same way. And of course this isn't a political show at all. And we don't, I don't want it to go there, but uh, I just think that's one of the things I have valued so much about our discussions is the ability to have those respectful differences and in the, and in the midst of it all, find out where, what we actually have in common, which are probably the more important things anyway. Absolutely. You know, the motto of our country is e pluribus unum out of many one. And from the beginning, America as an idea was founded on the notion that people of differing backgrounds, religions, philosophies, ideas could come together for the common good. And uh, we, t we tend to forget that Every good thing, every great thing that has happened in our country's history has been because people who are on opposite sides of a political divide came together and said, let's do this. There's this thing we can work on. Let's do it. So I, I very much love my country. I very much love the ideas on which she was founded. And I believe that if we set our minds to it, we're going to find enough in common that we can create a more perfect union. We'll never have a perfect union, but it could be a little closer being perfect. And that's our job to carry on in this generation and pass those ideals on to the next one. You know, as you're talking, here's what I'm thinking about. Cause in all of these conversations I'm having on this show, I'm, I'm making sure that we're viewing everything through the lens of leadership. So as you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, that's right. The the principles, the codified principles on which our country is founded are good. And when we abide by them, we it takes us to good places. It's when we don't abide by them, it's when we don't actually follow the ideology that we, you know, that we celebrate, 
where things go off track. And I think we can agree on that. I think we can also agree that that's how values statements inside organizations are. You can have the prettiest, most wonderful value statement with all the things bulleted that you should be, but it's up to you as to whether or not you live those values and people are going to see whether or not you live them. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And when you don't, you will, instead of having unity, you'll have chaos. And that will be on a personal level, a family level, an organizational level, a national or world level. Yep. It's when people live up to their ideals, which we all know what is right and what is wrong, how to make things better than they are. And when we do that, they get better. Um, you know, Martin Luther King is famous for having said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yes, but it can go up and down or back and forward. And so we can't just take it for granted that we can slap up a mission statement on a wall or vote on a constitution and it will automatically lead to just and righteous mm. behavior. Mm -hmm. But when we own it, and when we are willing to sometimes give up those things um, which, we, which may be closer to opinion than it is ideal and keep looking at the ideal, that's how we move it. And that, to me, that's what leadership's about, whether it's at the political level or an organizational level. Leadership is about understanding the difference between the good and the perfect. And the perfect can be the enemy of the good. We are about, at least in the social service sector, advancing the common good and not advancing the common perfection because we'll never get there. That's just a recipe to fail. No, but doesn't that slow the sector down? I mean, one of the things you and I have talked about a lot is we've lamented the excruciatingly slow speed with which the sector moves to make social change. I mean, not that social change should happen fast, but even the initiatives the, the specific strategies that we would like to employ, they take so long because nonprofits have bureaucracies and boards and communities and, and it, the perfect is, well, we have to get every board member and every donor and every committee member on board with this. And then it has to be all the ducks have to line up and we don't operate a lot like the corporate sector does where we just, you know, we take some risks and, and we, we test things and we experiment things. Uh, and I'm not trying to, you know, take a big stretch to make a link to what you just said, but when you said that perfect is the enemy of good, I think I've seen that in the sector. Have you, haven't you? I totally have seen it when you know what you need to do, but rather than do that, um, you get yourself bogged down in long planning discussions, long strategy discussions that are not really strategic at all. They're merely an excuse for getting on with the work. So, um, and I can say that as someone who makes at least part of his living as a consultant to organizations who can find themselves bogged down in their own strategic planning processes rather than leading out of the morass that has created the need to have a strategic planning process. So there's, you can set when you're, when as a leader, you can set the direction and that is your job. 
Your job literally is to get the sextant out for your organization. I may be aging myself here as I talk about sextants. You know, that GPS out and set the direction <laughs> and then get it to, to that direction. That's what we have to do. And, and that, yes, does that require rallying the troops? Does that require getting the right people on board? Sure. Yeah, but we but fall in love with the processes. That. You know, right. where, where the process is the end, you know, the, it's like when you're, when you're building a mission statement, it, it's too often about statement building and not enough about right. mission building or vision building. It's right. more about filling in the blanks, creating the construct, going through the process of things. We love processes. And, uh, you know, um, I've mentioned this guy all the time. I think I just talked about him in our, in our last episode, DeWitt Jones, the national geographic photographer mm -hmm. who talks about creativity says that patterns and systems in our lives are critical, but that if we let our patterns and systems go too long, unchecked or unquestioned, they become our prisons. And so in leadership, the same thing we can, we, as leaders, we can rely on a system and, and, and that's good. That's our, that's our framework. But if we rely too heavily on it without questioning its current relevance and its future viability, it literally can squelch us right, right then and there, the process itself, the system itself can be our downfall. It, it absolutely can. And, you know, if you want to borrow an analogy from the way the greater universe works, there are forces um, called inertia, which can pull you back into the gravitational order from orbit from which you were trying to escape. So velocity versus inertia versus gravity can pull you back into the sun where you burn up. Uh, to to take a very all if there's a physicist listening to this, they're lying on the floor right now groaning, saying, <laughs> "Made such a mess of that." But you know, when when you're trying to escape this place in which you find yourself, you have to move fast enough to break the gravity in, that is holding you in place. That doesn't mean you just push a button and blast your way out. What it does mean is knowing, setting the GPS, getting to the spot, creating enough force to get out of it, which doesn't require obviously building a certain amount of consensus, but you as the leader, you have to start the countdown. And when that, when one second, trips into zero you got to press the liftoff button you have to lead or you'll never get off it you'll never get out of the orbit you'll never get off the launch pad you'll never be able to take the plane off the end of the runway whatever analogy you want to use there you're just going to be stuck i love that analogy of breaking the earth's gravitational pull for leadership you know breaking the gravitational pull of our conventional methods or of the forces of resistance that we're already battling just to get where we're trying to go in making social change. Um, and yeah, so it takes, and again, I'm back to risk. I mean, the astronauts sit on that, on the top of that rocket, there's a great deal of risk involved in that. Uh, but there's also a great deal of thought and science and history of success and uh and willingness and boldness and understanding that if we don't do this we don't do it doesn't happen so i love i that's right. i hadn't thought of that uh that's a great analogy although if our listeners were sitting around the fire pit with us they would get to hear you tell us that there's actually no such thing as gravity 
but we, we, we won't go into that. I, I still, you're still blowing my mind with that one. Um, I think you may have slightly misquoted me there, maybe, but you know, maybe I know, I know uh, I did. Maybe, but yes, you're too smart for me to quote you accurately. Hey, tell, um, I would like to, you, you do have, th this is a great example, um, of how our conversations get going. I I've got things that normally I would jump into and ask you to sort of set this up, but we went straight into it and I love that, but I want to back up because I do want our listeners to understand a little bit about your leadership journey. Cause I just, when I go through your bio, it's all over the place, ministry, cabinetry, social sector, you know, all over the place. How would you sum up your leadership journey? What's the common thread that's led you to all these places where you've been able to serve? The common thread is looking at other people and looking for those places at which the gifts that they have and the gifts that I may have, however limited those may be, can touch each other. And together we can walk through part of the journey together. We're, Ram Das, the, the great Buddhist thinker and writer, once said, all we're doing is walking each other home. And that's really our job. Um, as somebody who was in the private sector and kind of grew up in the private sector, went, you know, spent 25 years in the social service sector and am now split between the two. Um, I believe that our actual call, every one of us, I don't, this is not a religious statement. It is a statement of pure humanism. Every one of us is called to serve other people. That is the only way we can ever achieve anything. And, it, and you can put that in the most rigorous capitalist sense you wish to. The purpose of Walmart is to serve its customers. And yes, its stockholders. But in both cases, there's service involved. So even at its, if you want to think about it in terms of crass commercialism, um, it's still about giving someone something that they need because you have a, a gift in which you can give them. Monetary exchanges aside, it's all about service. Once I really got that as a relatively young person in a career, it changed the way I viewed my job because frankly, I worked in the family business with my dad. He gave me, you know, I, he, he, he didn't hire me right out of school, but you know, eventually he did, and I hated what I did. I despised it until I realized that I had a product which could help people and make their jobs easier because it, it was a decent product. It had, you know, good specifications, all the things that could help make them money. But at the same time, it was something that they, as designers, builders, architects, I was in the kitchen and bath business then and still am, depending on what sector of the construction industry they were in, this product that I was selling at the time could help them be better at their job and for their customers, give their customers something they were looking for, which was a home that delighted them. And so once it clicked to me that I wasn't selling cabinets, I was selling the dream of a good home, everything changed because I had a gift to give to someone. It wasn't transactional. 
Yeah, I think uh, we had Nick Nanton on the on the show um, uh, a week ago, and he, we were having a similar conversation about service. And as he was talking, it dawned on me that service or servant leadership and some of the tough parts of leadership are not necessarily mutually exclusive. In other words, if I am leading a team and I have to correct that team, I have to tell you you're not showing up the way you need to show up. I'm serving you by doing that because I'm making you better. I'm, I'm actually, and you're saying the same thing that by, by selling a product, I'm serving you. It's about value. Something else that came to my mind as you were talking is, um, service is relative. You, you called it a calling. And I like that. Um, (laughs) I thought of the movie Goodwill hunting, which is one of my favorite movies. It's one of a lot of people's favorite movies. And the character will hunting who's played by Matt Damon is this genius, uh, you know, at, at math and he's, uh, but he's a construction worker and his, his friends and his professors, uh, the professors that he's working with are all telling him, you're not, you're not reaching your potential. You could do so much more, so much more. And he just keeps thinking, man, I, all these people are telling me what I should do. What's wrong with laying brick? Brick is a, a noble job and brick, you know, you think of a bricklayer, that's service. But the problem was not that he was serving by laying brick but that he was not serving to his calling or his potential that he could be doing more. And that's what his friends saw in him is that, yeah, sure. You're serving, but you can serve at a level we can't serve at and you're not answering the bell. So service is really a a relevant term. And in all the links or in all of the, the different things that you've done, uh, that's been, that's, seems to have been the link is service. You described it. You didn't use the word service when you described the link, but that's what I heard. Um, I totally agree that everything that we do well needs to be done in a spirit of service. And the problem of course is, is that we have this notion that service is the same as servitude, right? Right. Serving others is the same as slavery. And that's, that they are not the same. I mean, well service said. is the English word for it. But, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about, about ministry. Um, in ministry, uh, you have the concept of giving to other people from yourself. And that is service to others. And that goes beyond religious types of ministry. It can be secular ministry as well. And in some countries, we call someone who's in charge of the army a minister of defense. Um, We have a different word for it in the U.S. We call them secretaries. Mm. And you think, well, why would we call someone the secretary of defense? Well, because they are charged with keeping the closest held secrets of the organization together the writing down of those things, and then the carrying them out. So it's still a, we still have that same service notion in our different titles. But, you know, I really do like the idea of the, of calling those in charge of your country, your servants, your public Mm -hmm. servants, your public ministers for your good. It doesn't feel like that a lot. Yeah, we we won't go there right now. (laughs) Sometimes it does, but it doesn't Uh, feel like that a lot. uh, 
we right. you know politics sure. just politics in general it just doesn't feel much yeah. it doesn't feel yeah. much like service but but you know it should be yeah. and i know that but i know could, that they're out but it there it should be yeah that's right right the root word of politics is polis it's the people you are literally supposed to be serving yeah. the people if you are a politician um unfortunately many i won't say most or all but many um, are not in it to serve people, but in it to serve themselves. And that's too bad. Yeah. But. Well, one of the things you and I uh, share most in common is our time in the nonprofit sector and very specifically in the United Way Network, which gave us a point of view of a lot of the sector because of our connections and our work, our diverse interactions with organizations in the sector. And I think you would agree that Many, if not most, of the leaders in the social sector strive for servant leadership. Most of them are in the sector because they do want to make a difference for people. That's sort of the whole point. What, from your point of view, looking back on your years in the sector and even looking at it now with different eyes, what do you find to be the sector's biggest leadership challenges? First, thinking that it's all about you. Um, some of it is about you. Um, <laughs> if you're a good leader, some of it's about you. Mm -hmm. um, but once you begin believing that you're indispensable to your organization, you begin the long path to inertia and being pulled back into the gravitational pull of the sun and be burned up. Because your organization, even if you are the founder of your organization, the need for your organization existed before you, and probably it will exist after you, um, unless you are someone who starts an organization specifically to accomplish a time-limited goal and you accomplish that and then you go out of business, um, probably that need will continue. And so, yes, you as a leader have an indispensable role to play, but that role is not dependent upon Tim Ervelina or Patrick Jenks. That role is based upon a leader who can step into the role of leadership. And when the time comes, execute the call to leadership. I think you can and take so that. I think that. Go ahead. My, my biggest concern for the sector is that it's too much driven by individual personalities rather than mission and a sense of accomplishment of mission so that you have a series of expansions and contractions in organizations where they succeed extremely well under some leaders, extremely poor, poorly under others. And that, yes, does that have to do with the leader, the individual leaders grasp of what it means to be a leader? Yes, it does. But that's also our biggest risk is that there is not enough. There isn't a large enough pool of well-trained leaders who can carry organizations through seamlessly. And while it's true in the private sector that you could have, you know, let's say an American Express hire a new CEO 
and that person has to be hurried back out the door in, and I'm not picking on American Express here, but as, a, as an example, uh, maybe a year or two into their tenure because they didn't quite hit all of the benchmarks they were supposed to hit. What you rarely have is a massive business failure that's, that's based upon a single leader because there's a bigger pool from which to draw new leaders. And in the, and in the nonprofit sector, because we don't recruit well or train well or mentor well, our pool of available leaders tends to be smaller and we have expansion contraction issues. And it's that I think is our single biggest challenge and people lose faith then in the sector and say, ah, well, I'm not giving them any more money um, because they don't work anyway. And so I think number one, too much dependence upon individuals and their talents or lack thereof. And the second thing is a failure to understand how your particular organization fits into the overall social fabric of a community um, and believing that you're unique and, you, and nobody else could possibly do the work you do. So you, you, you may be called to a particular mission and that mission may be unique, but your organization is set up to function like every other nonprofit in your organization. You have a board and you have to raise money from donors you or or in grants in any case there is there is money which has to come in it has to be handled in an accountable way and you have to show some outcomes for using people's money so that's not really any different than any other organization in your community so you aren't unique your mission may be unique but your organization isn't so there's there's the leadership challenge and then there's the 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 conceptual challenge of nonprofits as a as an entity and as a system. Man, I could not agree more. In fact, when I started to interrupt there, it was that second layer that I was seeing as well. And you ended up going there. The, the it's all about me syndrome or the it's all about us syndrome. Either way, it's it, it, me as the individual or us as the organization. And I think the, the, it's all about me challenge goes into the corporate sector as well. But the, it's all about us, I think is unique to the nonprofit sector because we are required to collaborate and work within, within an ecosystem of change. When you're a homelessness, um, um, your, your organization is about alleviating homelessness. You're not going to do that by yourself you're going to need policies and you're going to need other players and you're going to need business support and faith support and neighborhood support and all kinds of things. You, you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. That's a, I think that's a real differentiator between the social sector and the for-profit sector is in the for-profit sector. I can have a product or a service and just, just go do it, go do it better than everybody else, beat the competition. And I can, it can be all about us, at least in our niche. But in the social sector, it we can't afford to do that. So I, I, I think that those are two challenges that are very related. I love it. 
And I, I would if well, we had if we had we, three we more episodes in order to survive. <laughs> well, I was going to say if we had three more episodes, we would get into how you do, how do you solve that challenge. <laughs> Well, we'll do that next one. In the yeah, time the after. next one. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we talked a little bit about the lack of speed in the sector. I think you and I, another thing we share in common is our need for speed. I think we're both, um, mm-hmm. I would call us sort of let's go do it kind of people. How does a leader get a group to move faster without exceeding the pace of the group? You know, like, like Marty Linsky's definition of leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. And um, p- people like me tend to um, exceed that rate <laughs> if I'm not careful. And when it's all about me and it's an individual performance thing, that's great. But when it's a leadership thing and I've, I'm bringing other people along, it doesn't work. What, what would you say are some of the key concepts for a leader to manage that space? the need balance the need for speed with everyone else's appetite for it welcome the ability of your staff to question your wisdom openly um and then explain again why we have to do it this way why it's important but also being willing yourself to listen to the questioning and being willing to adjust so that you're still moving in the right direction and you're still moving at a speed which can help to break the orbit. Um, and yet you haven't thrown the heat shields off too quickly. When a rocket is leaving the, um, the gravitational orbit, it does have heat shields, which it sheds. So you might say pieces of that rocket fall off, but they are engineered to fall off. And if too many of them fall out and when it hits reentry, it can burn up. We've seen that tragically um, in a couple of times in the U.S. Uh, and other countries' space missions is heat shields fell off to such a degree that the, uh, the vehicle burned up on reentry. You don't want that. So hearing those criticisms of your wisdom as a leader and being able to adjust slightly. Sometimes the least likely person in the room can identify the most important question. And you as a leader have to be astute enough to hear that. That's related to something I remember. I was coaching um, some of the people in an organization that you were leading And I remember one of them said to me that one of these days, Tim's going to ask us to do something and we're not going to be able to come through, but we haven't reached that point yet because he keeps asking and we keep pulling it off. (laughs) So, you know, that just sort of never happened. How do you manage that? How do you know, can I go one more level with these, with these people? Can I get one more, you know, and you weren't the kind to, to say, here here's every detail about how to make it happen. You were the kind that said, we need to make this happen and the talent's here to do it. So go do it. And yet didn't, yeah. didn't get to that point of, well, we've gotten to the point where we can't do it anymore. How do you, how do you know when that is? I'm not sure, you know, ahead of time. And I think you just push 
till you reach that place where you know when to back off. Mm. Pushing the throttle down doesn't mean you'll always have to keep it down. You can let up slightly and then push it back down again. The danger is not pushing it far enough, fast enough, again, to achieve escape velocity. So will there be people who fail? Yes. Will there be people who fail spectacularly? Um, yes. And indeed, you as a leader may be one of them. But being able to take the risk without worrying about will this take us off mission because the risk of being taken off mission is going the wrong way. You've set the course. You know where you have to go. And failure can be strategic, to borrow a phrase, um, if you allow it to be. So I'm not sure that ahead of time you, I would know whether my um, chief financial officer is, is capable of being pushed to this particular place as quickly as I want him or her to be pushed to this particular case place. Um, but I've got to risk it as the leader of asking them to go there and then knowing, okay, we're not ready. The tools aren't quite there yet. I thought they were, but they aren't quite there yet. What do we have to do to get this particular department or person or business unit to the place that we need to go so that the rest of this thing can achieve escape velocity together with them. Don't want to leave it all be anyone behind. Um, we, we, you can't risk that because then the organization can fall apart. That, that could be the lack of achievement of a mission. That's really important though. So, yeah, uh, that, it that is. Be, because what you just said is you push and if you feel like you're at a place where you have to back off, you don't just drop the innovation. You set, you pause and say, okay, I get it. We're not ready. What would it take to get ready? You're still leading forward. You're just slowing it down. You're not going, oh, you're not ready. Okay. I guess we can't do that. Right. Because if the mission's right, if the goal is right, if you really set the GPS for the right place, then that's the place you need to go. Yeah. Yeah figure out what's right and then figure out how to do it. And we get that in reverse. Sometimes we do the things we already know how to do. And that's how we right. build strategy. That's why so many strategic plans are just regurgitations of an organization's current functions because we're not willing to, to, to go, to go further. And again, question those out of date conventions that, that we have. Um, so, but you also, uh, you possess what I think a lot of, um, great leaders possess, which is, uh, I don't know what to call it, an intuition, a spidey sense, um, a perception. A leader has to be perceptive enough about and discerning enough about your team that sometimes you see competence and ability that the individual doesn't even see in themselves. So oftentimes what a leader can do is push someone or pull someone beyond the level they think they can go. And that is the art of leadership as well, is knowing, no, you can get to a higher place. You just don't believe it yet. But leadership is, I'm going to support you and help take you there, but you've got what it takes to get there. Absolutely. You have to believe that this person 
that you have hired to do a job is capable of more than that job. Because if you are already hi- hiring them at their full capacity, mm-hmm. then where to go. you're risking failure. Yeah, that's right. Y- you you may be only hiring them at 20% capacity. That's fine. You're going to have a lot of mentoring to do and to get them there, but that's okay because you've got 80% return. And when they hit full capacity, they may indeed make a ch- choice to go to another organization. But, but then part of your job as a leader is to create leaders for other organizations and to be happy when someone has learned enough from you that they can take that and build it on their own sense and become a leader to lead another organization to success. Um, I don't worry about people leaving to go to work for someone else because someone else saw them and hired them away from me. I actually think that's part of my job as an organizational leader. Well, there's the old cliche of, you know, what if I, what if I train and develop my people to the point where they leave and the answer is, what if you don't train them and they stay? <laughs> you know, yeah. so that that's that's much the more dangerous. much more much more problem. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm thinking about we're doing some work at the Jinx perspective about uh, uh, around helping senior leaders prepare for that top executive spot in a nonprofit organization. And it's difficult for nonprofits to do that because, as you mentioned, there aren't as many people. Um, organizations are often so small, they don't have the bench depth, let alone the capacity to fully invest in talent development and leadership training and success, true, true succession planning. So we're, you know, developing some products to help organizations through that. But it's critical because you just what you just said about hiring someone at their full potential already, that's a tough hiring decision because you can look at a couple of candidates. One of them has tons of experience, knows exactly how to do this, has done it, you know, in their sleep, inside out, upside down and backwards. And you have another candidate who might need some development, some training, some OJT, some research, but they've got the emotional intelligence, the drive, the the character, the personality to, for the leader to be able to look at and say, you're worth taking a chance on because you're going to grow this beyond what it currently is. And those become tough hiring decisions sometimes when you've got to fill something quickly. And that's what we do in organizations that are small. Somebody leaves, boy, I got to fill this position quick because stuff's happening that I don't know how to do. That's a real challenge. That is a real challenge. Um, but you still have to do it. Yeah. The rewards will be great when you make the right decision. If you haven't made the right decision, and I would say I, I have not always been on the winning end of hiring decisions, um, but then I don't think any leader ever is. You just take the risks there, and you have to learn how to move someone into the right place in your organization. Jack Welch once said that um, leading an organization is not the same thing as putting the right people in the right seats on the bus. It's putting the right people in the right seats on the right bus. Everything has to be in the right place in order to move to get to your destination. And it's your job to say, hey, this person may not even be on the right bus. (laughs) 
and move move that person to a, a different bus because that different bus may be a different organization. Well, it's, and and Welch all about. Welch frequently moved as much as a third of his workforce on a regular basis to other buses. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, he did. And yet he was a great leader, and he yeah. moved GE into places that they had never even dreamed of being right. before he got there. Well, I love something you just said a minute ago. Uh, it, I don't want it to. I want to say it again so that I remember it down the road because I think it's something leaders should probably say more often. You said, "Yeah, it's a big challenge, but you still have to do it." I don't know that we. I don't do know that. that we say that often enough about the challenges in our lives or the challenges that our team faces. You know, well, this is too much. We can't do this. It's a big challenge. We got this and we got that barrier and this. And, you know, sometimes the answer is, yep, but we still got to do it. (laughs) So let's go do it. Well, if you think about kind of looking back at things from our national story, when we were in the midst of the Great Depression, when America had almost given up on its idea of itself and President Roosevelt made that amazing fireside speech in which he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing to be afraid of. Because if we let fear of failure, fear of collapse, fear of all, of whatever bad thing can happen, control us, we're not going to get to success. So it And look at the challenges that we faced then in in that really awful time in our history. And yet we faced them. We faced them right. And we created systems which still exist today, 80, almost a century later, almost 90 years later from when they were enacted by Roosevelt. We still have things in place that have carried our nation and made it stronger. And did everything he he tried work? Heck no. Some of it flamed out spectacularly early, but he tried it anyway because he knew the direction he needed to lead the country. And he had to constantly go back and say, look, I know this looks scary, but let's try it. Let's make it work. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, I don't know if you would call this a theory. We talk a lot about, uh, you know, the, the younger generations don't, doesn't have the work ethic that the, you know, that our generation had. And I, I think probably every generation says that about the one that follows them. I'm finding that I don't think the next generation has a lower work ethic. I just think it's going to take more to challenge them. That inspiration of what, you know, um, Roosevelt Kennedy, there's another one, you know, of, uh, of paint, painting a real picture of something that's worth working for and worth serving for. There was that inspiration vision casting. And, uh, I don't know sometimes that leaders have effectively been able to cast the right vision for today's generation who, who want real purpose and challenge, and maybe they're just not challenged enough. It's like a lot of students in school who misbehave. It's not because they're bad. It's just, they're bored and they're not challenged enough. And, um, I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here as you talk about the challenge of, of those of us in, in, in my generation leading the next generation. Um, we can't be afraid to challenge them and show them possibility because they, they probably have uh, an appetite for more than we even 
realize is possible. We just don't see it. And so we, we lead in our own old ways and that's just not, that's just not inspiring oftentimes to the next generation. Well, it isn't because who would inspire it? If we, if we are giving non-inspirational advice to any team, why follow that? Yeah. Because if you don't believe you can win, don't, you're not going out on the field. Or if you go out on the field and you're going out on the field to be trampled, all you're going to do is be holding your hands up against whatever incoming there may be. And that's not an effective strategy to succeed, whether what? it's on a, a, an athletic field or when you're trying to execute a mission in an organization. You have to believe that that mission is achievable. And as a leader, it is your job to make the mission inspirational and to show people how they can achieve it themselves and to inspire them to bring others along on the journey. Yeah. And why achieving it will, will mean something. So it's the, it's the ability to achieve it. And it's also the meaningfulness of the mission, you know, previous generations, our default level of trust of other leaders was such that, um, that we, we would just do it because we were told to do it. The leader believed and the leader said, if you do this, it'll lead to this. And we just did it today. It's like, well, you got to give me more than that, that you want me to do it. And this is what it will lead to. You have to connect it to my internal motivation somehow. Well, it's probably always been true that people were motivated and great leaders were able to see that which was within someone and they spoke to that thing and inspired them. I'm not sure that people will necessarily buy something that is your vision. I mean, you maybe end up playing your pipe, but there are no, there's no one behind you following you as you're playing your pipe. That's right. So the Pied Piper played a melody that everybody liked. That's why they followed it. (laughs) Yeah. You have to connect you. uh, You have to connect people's existing internal motivations with the purpose in the work. Right. Um, so a couple of questions, um, before we wrap up that I ask all my guests and, um, one is who were the leaders in your early career or life that you would say helped shape your view of leadership? What, what made, what made that possible? So, you know how we always say teachers are the most important, um, mentors in a child's life beyond their parents. Mm -hmm. Um, I think back, I was privileged to have Ed Durbin, um, who was my social studies teacher from ninth grade through 12th grade uh, in high school. Mr. Durbin was a brilliant intellectual. He was quirky. Um, Politically, he probably would have been very different from me. Um, I know he was. But he made me think. He challenged everything that I thought I knew about the world And he once said to me, great wisdom is found primarily in books and those who write them. So read as much as you can and learn as much about the people who wrote the books. Mm. 
So he just, um, I, I still think about him all these years later, and I'm so grateful for having been in a place where I could learn from a great leader. And, you know, as I, as I think back to across my life, I think about bosses that I had. Um, one particular boss that I had who um, was in the United Way system actually helped me to understand the relationship between my job that I did and the bigger mission statement. And he, I stole a phrase from him often and used it in my career. United Way used to have a um, fall fundraising campaign that is now kind of ongoing as the world has changed and it's gotten more complicated. So it's kind of a year round fundraising that is done in the United Way system. And in the spring there was when the grants and allocations were announced. And he used to say to us, if fall don't happen, spring don't happen. And <laughs> while that sounded a little simplistic, it really wasn't. If we didn't do our individual jobs, we could never achieve the mission. And both of those, those men, um, you know, both of, of the people that I picked were male. Uh, but that isn't because I haven't known great women leaders. But I would just say that in, in my particular case, these two guys inspired me. Wow. If, if fall don't happen, spring don't happen. That's great. That's great. It reminds me of, it reminds me of Mark O'Connell, the leader at United Way in Atlanta for many years, a big system leader. He used to say, we've got to, we've got to get our United Ways to where people don't envision the hand, the logo as this giant hand that raises up out of the ground every fall, takes everybody's money and disappears till next fall that something happens between that time where we do something right. with that money. That's good. And, uh, that's great. Yeah. If fall don't happen, spring don't happen. Um, that's great. Last question, uh, Tim, what is the Tim Irvalina number one piece of advice for leaders today? Be true. That's mm. it. Just be consistent. Be true. And that, that truthfulness has to do with everything in your life. Um, when you are not true to yourself, to your mission, to your spouse, to your family, to whatever it is that is guiding you to the North Star or your own personal North Star, you won't be a complete leader. Mm. And we, none of us is perfect in that regard and we all drift off course, but always look at where you're going and be true to where you're going. Wow. Uh, powerful. And be true to yourself. And you've done that. You, you've you lived it. You still live it. You inspire me. I appreciate I appreciate all the support you are to me and have been to me and the example you've set in leadership. And thanks for coming on. And you know, you know you'll be back thanks, probably man. many times. Thank you. <laughs> I intend to be. So uh, tune in, everyone. Our next episode is Stacy Stewart. She is the head of the March of Dimes, uh, um, the March of Dimes, the big one, the, the headquarters. And um, we're going to learn a lot about leadership from her. And in fact, Tim and I know Stacy well from our United Way days. And uh, so Stacy's going to be amazing. And then later on in the week, we've got another um, South Carolina practitioner of uh 
nonprofit success and social impact, and we just keep it going. This is about leadership, though, and we talk a lot about the social sector, but um, leadership is leadership. So if you're listening to this and you're not in the nonprofit sector, pay attention because these concepts are concepts across the board, whether you're in government, uh, nonprofit, for-profit, your family, your neighborhood. So stay with us, folks. we got lots of uh, great stuff still coming up. Lead on.